All right, uh, good morning, everybody. Hey. Um, my name is Max Heidelberger. That is uh, Heidelberger as in, as in the catechism. Um, my, uh, my family were uh, German-Norwegian uh, immigrants, and uh, the city uh, bears our name. That's how we like to think about it. Um, uh, Matt Milliner invited me here to speak about Grace and Luther this morning. Uh, as far as my qualifications, if we're going to call them that, I, uh, I'm a Wheaton College grad, and uh, so was here actually in this community for uh, two years, uh, my junior and senior year while I was at Wheaton uh, between 2012 and 2013. And then uh, my wife, Catherine, and I uh, did three years at Princeton Theological Seminary, earned our MDivs there. And now I'm back in Wheaton, where I've been for about a year and a half now working for the admissions office and uh, just super delighted to share more about Luther with you this morning and about the legacy of the Reformation and how we, uh, as a Reformation church, coming up on this wonderful 500th anniversary can reflect and grow and allow ourselves to be impacted by what that meant then and what that means for us now. So uh, I've got some content here. I'm going to go through this and then open it up for questions uh, and discussion afterwards. And uh, yeah, I'm going to dive, dive right in. <clears throat> All right. Since we are nearly 500 years to the day from Luther's whoop, a great send-up of the religious establishment during the Protestant Reformation, I'd like to start with a somewhat lengthy quote from a former professor of mine at Princeton. This quote's a bit wordy, so we're going to take it slow, and it's also one of the most Protestant things that Catherine and I have recently read, so I just definitely wanted to share it with you this morning. It's a block of text from Bruce McCormick, uh, one of our professors at Princeton Seminary, and it's from an, the afterword of a volume that he edited recently and published on ecumenical engagement with that greatest of Catholic theologians, Thomas Aquinas. So here McCormick is reflecting on disagreement in theological conversation and how we ought to respond when we find ourselves baffled by the convictions of our fellow Christians. So McCormick writes, rather than seeking a premature ecumenical agreement that would likely entail the assimilation of the teachings of one's own church to those found in another, should we not enter dialogue with the expectation that the theology that will enable us to confess a common faith does not yet exist? and can only come into existence when representatives of both great communi communions seek to further develop their own theologies with the questions and concerns of the conversation partners firmly in mind. What I'm suggesting is that we should be, what we should be seeking is not ways to adapt ourselves to or simply to adopt the teachings of another church in relation to questions whose form gave rise to the divisions that we now see. What we should be asking instead is whether it is necessary to continue to put the old questions in precisely the same way. So here McCormick is offering both a warning against an overvaluation of church unity, as I see it, as if we could erase our differences and reach a perfect universal church this side of paradise. I mean, we've, we've tried that for a long time. It's, sometimes it feels like we're close, other times maybe not so much. Uh, what is needed then is not disengagement through unity, uh, but new forms of engagement with one another. And what McCormick is signaling is that creativity and innovation are, are the hallmarks of theology. Uh, we should not make a name for ourselves by retreating into tradition when confronted with a new problem, a new age, or a new voice. Rather, ecumenical conversations in this post-Reformation church need to move forward through our creative reinterpretation of historic doctrines and beliefs. Another way of looking at this, to borrow from uh, another theologian that I respect, another Princeton Seminary grad, since that's the world we were in, uh, named David Congdon, uh, he says uh, that we need to look for theology that's translatable in its essence. 
Uh, by translatable in its essence, I mean relatable across space and time and not bound to a single context or tradition. Because we see historically that all theology is a hybrid. Uh, all theology evolves with the times, within the trajectories set by scripture and tradition. So it's not you know, just going crazy, um, but it is always in transition. There's no pure, stable theology. And likewise, there's no pure, pure stable tradition either. At least not one that we found yet. Again, this side of paradise. The eschaton is still coming. That's allegedly going to change a lot for us. <laughs> Our goal then should not be to return to some mythic past, not to some ancient church that we will never witness or understand, nor even to some Reformation high watermark, because that's all already happened. And since those days, the content of our theology has been shifted around as we work out our faith with fear and trembling from one generation, one Protestant tradition to the next. So all theology is then inherently impure, inherently contaminated, um, and it's inherently this way all the time. It's inescapable. There's no hope for a culture-free theology, uh, says Condon. And as McCormick says, uh, just as McCormick says, there's no hope for a unified theology. These things simply don't exist, or at least they exist nowhere that we can have access to them. So what we have instead, in the words of Condon, is this, quote, eternally permeated, hybrid, contaminated way of speaking about God. Eternally permeated, hybrid, and contaminated. And our job as Christians is to articulate this permeated, hybrid, contaminated theology and then shift it to a new situation. And Condon writes that tradition is then the task of translation. And uh, we as Anglicans obviously know this very well as we translate our own tradition uh, from the Reformation onward. So if translation is to, uh, structural to theology, how do we translate grace from Luther's Reformation to now? Today I'm going to try to approach this question by thinking through some writings from Luther himself, uh, my own Lutheran background, and the content of our tradition as a liturgical Reformation church. So yes, um, in addition to my qualifications as far as having an MDiv, I'm also a cradle Lutheran. Surprise. <laughs> um, and while I've worshipped as a member of the Anglican Communion for the past six years, and Catherine and I were actually received into ACNA, I think, from our respective traditions about three years ago, um, I am, in fact, an expatriate Lutheran who's found a home in the Anglican Church. And, you know, obviously happy to be here, so no worries there. Uh, my parents are graduates of St. Olaf College in Minnesota from families German and Norwegian on both sides, which means that I was raised deep down the Lutheran rabbit hole. And uh, it is actually a rabbit hole. Uh, Matt and I were just talking about this. Um, Lutherans tend to miss out on a lot of the other things that Protestants and Evangelicals are doing. Um, that's because uh, Lutheranism uh, was more of a, a cultural movement in the United States before it was uh, kind of an Evangelical or even a Protestant movement. Um, the history of Lutheranism in America is characterized by being constantly passed over by Evangelicalism. So while what, uh, Wesley and Whitfield preached, while Awakenings were sweeping across the country, Lutherans, again primarily in the Midwest, moms from Fargo, you know, um, used their Christian tradition uh, to wall themselves off, often through linguistic barriers. These were all, you know, German-speaking, Norwegian-speaking churches, and they did this in order to maintain cultural values of importance to their German and Scandinavian ancestors. And uh, as evangelical historian David Bebbington puts it, Lutherans kept a scrupulous distance um, from their crazy evangelical counterparts uh, until they finally uh, began to engage in the missionary movements around the 20th century. That's kind of how that, how that trajectory went. Um, and though I was a 90s kid, this is, uh, so, you know, missionary movements obviously have been happening. <laughs> um, this is what my parents did as well, to a certain extent, uh, were cultural Lutherans. So I was raised on Luther's small catechism, uh, not on Through the Gates of Splendor or My Utmost for His Highest. <laughs> those, those aren't books that Lutherans usually read. Um, I think we have copies in my home now because I went to Wheaton. 
so the Lutheran story is not quite the same as the evangelical story in this country, although we both owe a great debt to the Reformation and, of course, to Luther himself. Um, and cultural Lutherans obviously can be theological Lutherans uh, too. Uh, so my friend uh, Mark Clements, uh, is he here today? No? Ah, oh, sad. Uh, was uh, kind enough to give me this icon. Uh, I'm not sure where it's from or who made it. I think Mark found it at a thrift store, right? Most likely. Um, but at any rate, it's a visual representation of uh, my own spiritual heritage. Uh, Martin Luther and Thomas Cranmer, pillars of reform. That's what it says. <laughs> so there they are. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty awesome. Uh, whenever I find my theological imagination spinning out of control, I find myself drawn back to these two poles. Um, and I'm, I'm probably somewhere in the middle now. Uh, so now you know where I'm coming from. Uh, when you have these two guys, you know, standing behind you, it's just capital letter Reformation Protestantism. And that's uh, what I'm happy to represent for you all today. And we'll leave that up there. At seminary, I had a professor who told me that he thinks each Protestant denomination in all of its uh, fragmentation, and all their fragmentations, has been given a gift of the church to steward. So uh, permit me here to paint us and all of our dear Protestant friends uh, in very broad strokes for a moment. Uh, my professor said that uh, Presbyterians steward the gift of the word. He was Presbyterian, so just claim that one from the get-go. Anglicans steward the gift of the sacraments. Baptists steward the gift of regeneration. Wesleyans steward the gift of holiness. And Lutherans steward the gift of grace. So again, this is just, you know, kind of uh, shower thoughts about Protestants from my professor. Um, and by this, he didn't mean that each church brings something that other churches necessarily lack, as if Presbyterians are without sacraments or Wesleyans are without the word. Um, Baptists are kind of without sacraments, but, <laughs> so, so, sorry, Catherine. <laughs> my, uh, my wife was raised in a Baptist community in Oklahoma City, so. Um, but it's obviously not the case that the churches are necessarily making up for massive deficiencies in the other ones, but it's more of a case of uh, where the emphasis falls. When we talk about stewarding uh, these gifts of the church, it is about emphasis. And we might say, going back to McCormick and Condon, that Lutherans are in the business of translating grace and stewarding that doctrine of grace again and again. Certain churches just can't get away from certain themes in my experience, uh, and uh, my Lutheran upbringing uh, was a grace-based gospel upbringing. Uh, I was uh, fed a scrappy, grace-based Lutheran gospel from when I was a child, and it's a gospel that meets us in the mundane, everyday sins of human existence, again, <laughs> Midwestern, uh, a response to sins both large and small, even little ways that we dig and chip at each other, wounding slowly over time. It's the gospel that led my father to say to me when I had been out late at night getting involved in things I shouldn't have, uh, that while my actions were stupid and foolish, uh, by the way, if you ever want to just break my heart, call me a fool. That's like still the most damning thing my father can ever say to me. So I like to think that I reason things out, and my dad's like, Max, man, that was a foolish decision. Just, ugh. So if, if you really hate what I say today, come afterwards and tell me I'm a fool. I'll take it to heart. Um, at any rate, while my actions were stupid and foolish, uh, my dad also shared that he had done the same thing when he was my age. It's the gospel that reconciled my father with his own Lutheran father when after an explosion of cruel words, that could have damaged the relationship beyond repair. My grandfather met my father's tearful pleas for forgiveness with a simple, I love you, Todd. Let's never speak of this again. It's a gospel of unlooked for and undeserved solidarity, which is what my father shared with me. Love, uh, what my grandfather shared with my father. And forgiveness and restoration, what we all received um, from our parents. Uh, for those who know themselves to be beyond help, interpersonally, socially, politically. 
It's this gospel, inflected with Luther's brutal honesty and dry wit, that I come back to again and again, and which I'll try to make further translatable for us this morning. All right, so I've done a, ta- a lot of talking not about Luther, but we're finally going to jump into Luther here. Um, last week, Matt did a great job of sketching Luther's background and context, so I'm not going to spend too much time on this. Uh, born in 1483, he launched the Reformation in 1517 with his 95 theses and died in 1546 at the age of 62. So there you go. Life of Luther. Uh, To say that much has been written about Luther is an understatement. So instead of offering a biographical overview of his life, I want to hone in on one specific text this morning that crystallizes the thoughts of Luther's heart towards God, the church, and the Reformation. This text is Luther's Confession of the Articles of Faith. So published in 1528, just over a decade after his theses, his confession is a kind of prototype for other Protestant confessions. It foreshadowed the Augsburg Confession in particular and is itself organized according to the model in the Apostles' Creed. Um, So this isn't necessarily an iconic text from Luther that I'm sharing with you this morning. There are more memorable ones like the bondage of the will, among other things. Um, But I think it has special relevance for Anglicans. And the reason is that Luther's confession arose out of a debate that we Anglicans uh, would likely say we have a stake in, figuring out just what the heck is happening in the Lord's Supper. And oddly enough, uh, for this confession, the Eucharist doesn't even necessarily occupy the lion's share of the, of the confession. Um, spoiler, by the way, Luther has a high view of the Eucharist, so don't, don't be worried about that. <laughs> um, and, but where it appears, the debate over the Eucharist is almost entirely parenthetical. So rather than serving as the main object of Luther's confession, the Eucharist becomes an occasion for Luther to reflect on his own life and faith. So how appropriate for us that Luther finds himself pressed at the foot of the altar of the Lord to confess his deepest theological convictions, concerns, and hopes. And this fundamental Eucharistic orientation makes this particular text an excellent inroad for us Anglicans today. So that's, that's why I chose the text I chose. All right, so now we finally got into what I really want to talk about today, which is grace in Luther. Uh, here it is. At the root of Luther's confession, central to it, is a foundational distinction a distinction that's at the root of the Reformation and at the root of Protestant traditions everywhere today. I might argue that this distinction is the closest thing that Protestants have to any kind of apostolic succession because this distinction is what we as a Protestant church continue on in. If we ever lose sight of this distinction, we lose sight of the tradition in which we stand. This distinction gives rise to Condon's claim that theology is always contaminated, always in process, never perfect and imperfection that demands that we return to this distinction again and again. This distinction is the gospel of grace that we must translate from one generation of Reformation churches to the next. So you're all like, what is it, right? Hold hold your horses. The distinction is this, and now I'm just gonna simply quote Luther. To be holy and to be saved are two completely different things. That's the foundational distinction. To be holy and to be saved are two completely different things. This is the gospel of grace in miniature. And in the German here, there's a delightful uh, lyricism and rhyme to this phrase. Uh, we are to be, and Megan, let me know if I get this right, uh, selig, and, uh, not heilig. So saved, not holy. Uh, this foundational differentiation is fundamental to the life of grace that we are probing as a community this year uh, in these catechesis classes. And this distinction must be translated uh, from us to the generations to come, as it has been over the last 500 years. If we must be perfect to be saved, uh, obviously, what hope do we have? If, if our theology must be perfect to work, must be perfect to convey truths about God and to lead others to God, we'd really best dispose of theology. Um, if we claim to have it all, we have nothing. So no, our theology is not perfect. And in fact, the entire 
uh, entire Protestant churches and entire Protestant theological movements arise out of some pretty embarrassing situations, um, most familiar, familiar to all of us uh, and, and to all my Catholic friends. <laughs> um, the Anglican Church came about because Henry VIII wanted a divorce. Whoops. You know, like, that's, you can't get away from that. You know, all, all these contexts run together, and a lot of imperfect situations give rise to what we have today. So you see that our lives are not wholly sanctified. Our actions are not wholly good, most often not even an approximation of goodness. In addition to this, our luck is often bad. Our striving is often futile, and when successful, not successful for very long. Our attempts to explain the gospel itself always fall completely short, and far from receiving a free pass on all of this through cheap grace, as if we can just ignore our mistakes and inadequacies and stumble on anyway, we can all affirm that this is actually pretty awful, right? It's inexcusable. To live an unsanctified, unholy life is an awful way to live. It would be better to be holy. Truly, it would. And Luther agrees, uh, and he agrees in just un absolutely unflinching terms. He knows full well what unholiness uh, will mean for him and for all of us at the last judgment at the coming of Christ. Uh, he likes to describe it in pretty lurid language. Um, the doctrine of hell is a kick in the seat of our pants, um, and it is the destruction we deserve. Again, not to get all doom and gloom on us here, but listen to what Luther writes in his confession. He says, original sin is not merely infirmity, as if uh, it could be addressed by the right, uh, the right medicine, but in his words, uh, our sin is enormous. <laughs> that's the, the word he uses, like a tumor that's out of control. Luther continues, outside of Christ, death and sin are our, our rulers, and the devil is our God and the one whom we serve, and there is no power or ability, cleverness or reason by which we can make ourselves righteous and give ourselves life or even try to discover it. And if that sounds like just breathless, it's because there are like no commas in that sentence, as, as Luther writes it, just runs on and on. Um, so just breathe this in, because this is how we are. This is who we are. To say that we are terribly insufficient is an understatement. In Luther's view, sin has so polluted us that we can do no good thing under our own power. We are wicked, and the way that we are should be otherwise, full stop. But we can thank our Lord Jesus Christ uh, that it need not be so. Because to be selig, we need not be heilig. To be saved, we do not need to be holy. Neither does our theology, nor our churches. So this distinction, in my opinion, is the core of the reformation of Luther's theology and of true Protestantism today. And from this fundamental distinction flows Luther's doctrine of God. And here we're going to quote from the Confession again at length. Luther writes, These are the three persons and one God, in one God who has totally and completely given all of God's own being to us with everything that God is and has. As Father, God's own being is given to us along with heaven and earth and together with all creatures in order that they might serve and benefit us. But this gift became useless and was overshadowed through even Adam's fall. Therefore, the Son himself has subsequently given himself to us and has bestowed upon us all his works, sufferings, wisdom, and righteousness and reconciled us to God in order that Return to life and righteousness, we would also know and have God's own presence and gifts. But because this grace is useful to no one if it remains secretly hidden and could not come to us, the Holy Spirit comes and is given to us also, wholly and completely. This same Spirit teaches us to understand that the benefits of Christ which have been revealed to us helps us receive and preserve these benefits which are useful for our needs and distributes, increases, and extends them to others. So when we have nothing, when we have no holiness and no hope in heaven or in hell of achieving this holiness, the life of God is opened up. The impossible possibility is made manifest. In Luther's Trinitarian theology, the entirety of God's being becomes gift, 
becomes grace when we accept that we have no ability whatsoever to achieve holiness on our own. And you may be thinking of Karl Barth here. Uh, Bruce McCormick, whoa, at PTS once told me very reductively and a bit tongue-in-cheek that Karl Barth's theology is just Luther on steroids. I would never want to evangelicalize Barth or Luther for that matter, but the personal element of God as gift is present here and as present in the preaching of Wesley and Whitfield. As in the Eucharist, so in our lives and bodies. God is for us and with us. God's being is gift, and this gift is grace, and anything that we do or devise to offer special forgiveness to get God outside of the free pathway of God's own son dishonors and nullifies uh, the salvation that we're offered. Also notice the robust role of the Holy Spirit in Luther's doctrine of God. Catherine knows that I've written off the Spirit in my own theology more uh, often than I can count, <laughs> and she's great at holding me accountable to this. Uh, but don't we all do, at least, I mean, I'm making fun of myself, but don't many of us do this. <laughs> I often hear the spirit described as the divine feminine, as if we need to apply a gender binary to the Trinity to make it make sense, um, or as some adjunct second-class citizen to the Trinity. And Luther rejects this. The spirit is holy God, and as God is imaged by and present with men and women, sustaining us as God is with us in time and space, so is the spirit. And as I shared earlier, Luther writes that the spirit comes and is given to us also. The spirit is also a gift along with the Son and the Father, teaching us to understand the benefits of Christ revealing, distributing, increasing, and extending um, us and the gifts of God to us. So the Holy Spirit in Luther is the reason we persevere in the absence of Christ's body on earth. The Spirit is who we have, um, and uh, we would do well to, to cling to it. There is something forcefully Protestant about this claim as well, for this robust understanding of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as wholly sufficient gift for us is why Luther was also keen on reducing the Catholic sacraments to baptism and Eucharist. Something that I find a particular challenge to high church Protestant communities in this particular decade when we often prefer to lean towards intensified sacramentalism in our life and practice. Uh, sacraments are compelling. They embed our religious experience in comprehensible acts. And Luther goes big on the sacraments he supports, like he really does. Uh, baptism and Eucharist, absolutely. Um, and uh, I've had a few conversations with some of you in this church on this subject, so I don't want to belabor the point. But decomplexifying our sacramental life is one of the great innovations of Protestantism. So I'll let Luther speak for himself again through his confession, and here he's going to be addressing the anointing of the sick, last rites, holy orders, penance, and marriage. Luther writes, If unction were employed in accordance with the gospel, Mark 6.13 and James 5.14, I would let it go. But to make a sacrament out of it is nonsense. In the same way, instead of vigils and masses for the dead, it would be better to deliver a sermon on death and eternal life and also pray during the funeral and meditate upon our own end, as it seems the elders did. It would also be good to visit the sick, and if anyone wished to, in addition to anoint them with oil, pray with them and admonish them, they should be free to do so in the name of God. But there is also no need to make sacraments out of this, or of marriage, or of the office of the priesthood. These orders are holy enough in and of themselves. So too, penance is nothing other than the practice and power of baptism. Thus, two sacraments remain, baptism and the Lord's Supper. In them, along with the gospel, the Holy Spirit richly offers, grants, and accomplishes the forgiveness of sins. So I hope you see how Luther here is collapsing the other sacraments into their proper sources, baptism and Eucharist, which have as their proper sources the life of God and the salvific action that constitutes God's life. All that is accessible to us is offered by and in God alone and nowhere else. This is sufficient for us. This is all we need. And this is not a reduction, but an expansion. Our God is sufficient for all of this. 
So instead of scrambling around searching for the right sacramental medicine for whatever ails us, we can find it in one person, uh, the life of Jesus Christ. So my hope is that you have pride in being Protestant. Uh, I certainly do, and it's funny to me that the biggest critiques I often hear about Protestantism, that it's so fragmented, there's no centralized authority, we argue constantly, it's so contaminated, uh, are in fact at the root of the Protestant project. This is where we come from. The Protestant church is a broken church. And the saving grace, literally, of the Protestant Christian is this very brokenness. Catherine and I were blessed to hear uh, the novelist Marilyn Robinson speak in Princeton two years ago. And she told, told us there that uh, I hold to theology because only theology embraces the true, the tenable, and flawed as reality holds them. So when we're all falling apart, what could possibly hold us together other than a theology of grace? The one-way love of God makes possible whatever would be impossible. And Luther's innovation was to articulate this gospel of grace as the cornerstone, not of the true church, but of the fallen church in need of saving. Selig, not heilig. Saved, but not holy. This is the gospel we cling to, and as Luther famously declared, we can do no other. So uh, in wrapping up, and it uh, looks like we're doing good on time, uh, I want to close with a story. A year and a half ago, Catherine and I attended the Festival of Faith and Writing at Calvin College. It's an awesome event, one that we try to attend as often as we can. And one of the keynotes of 2016's festival was Nadia Bowles-Weber. So some of you may have heard of Nadia Bowles-Weber. There was a big piece on her in the Washington Post a few years ago titled, Bowles-Weber's liberal, foul-mouthed articulation of Christianity speaks to fed-up believers. <laughs> uh, right. The article described her love of tattoos, competitive weightlifting, and how she liked to drop profanities for kicks and giggles when she preached. A quote from the article reads, In her body and her theology, Bowles Weber represents a new muscular form of liberal Christianity, one that merges the passion and life-changing fervor of evangelicalism with the commitment to the inclusiveness and social justice of mainline Protestantism. She's a tatted-up, foul-mouthed champion to people sick of being belittled as not Christian enough for the right or too Jesus-y for the left. Uh, and the article also mentioned that she was Lutheran. So this was literally all I had ever heard of uh, Nadia, and uh, I ran to this article in the middle of my own Anglican liturgical renaissance, um, and uh, was pretty disgusted. So you know, just thinking to myself, oh great, another cynical hipster gospel for our cynical hipster generation. Um, but since she was at the festival, uh, I figured I might as well go and hear her speak about her process as a writer and a preacher. Uh, I'd never heard her preach, never read her writing, um, but of course I completely knew what to expect, right? Um, and what I expected was that my eyes were, were going to roll. Um, but Bowles Weber, but Nadia uh, actually floored me in, in her preaching. What she shared at her plenary session was, was firstly not even like a plenary talk, but definitely just an old-fashioned Lutheran sermon. Uh, not a profanity-filled rant against the religious establishment. Although if she had done that, that would have been super Lutheran, if you've ever, <laughs> if you've ever read Martin Luther. Um, was also not a squeamish appeal to civic authorities, uh, in, in my mind Democrats, to protect those marginalized within her movement, although this also would have been Lutheran. Um, so, yeah, so uh, Luther's patronage by Prince Frederick III during the vulnerable early days of his movement was the reason he actually survived uh, his 95 theses at all. Frederick literally shielded Luther from the Pope by staging a fake highway robbery in order to ensure Luther's safe passage to Wartburg Castle after the Diet of Worms. So, you know, engaging civic authorities, also Lutheran. <laughs> uh, at any event, uh, what Bowles Weber shared was a brutally frank gospel of grace. And uh, one phrase that many of us remembered from that night was this. She said, so many of us are simply tormented by the distance between our ideal self and our actual self. 
And Nadia shared this with so much empathy, um, as if she knew what it was like to be tormented in this way, and so did we all, because again, we are not okay. We are rotten. We're falling apart. As Luther shared, or, or, or ranted, maybe, death and sin are our rulers, and the devil is our God and the one whom we serve, and there is no power or ability, cleverness or reason by which we can make ourselves righteous and give ourselves life or even try to discover it. Right. No commas or breaks in the litany of things that we get wrong. The chasm could not be more vast. Our striving could not be more futile. And yet, God and Christ in the Spirit remain as gift for us, saved but not holy. Never holy. No chance in hell of holiness. But saved? Yes. Yes, saved. And Bulls Weber offered us this Christocentric hope. So what she preached was not the sermon I was promised in the WAPO article. It was a Lutheran sermon. Lutheran where the emphasis fell. Lutheran in its cleaving to the gospel of grace. And I was humbled beyond belief, which is exactly the point. And my heart also jumped. So to go back to the very beginning of this conversation, how do we translate Luther's legacy 500 years later? How do we continue to translate grace across the shortcomings and despair and injustice of the next 500 years, uh, should we get that far? Uh, we can return to McCormick, asking how we might put the old questions in new ways, or to Condon, how to speak of God with our permeated, hybrided, uh, hybrid, contaminated Protestant theologies. And to do both of these things, we must put our hope first in the gospel of grace as enjoyed and celebrated in a community of grace. And so that we can understand how Luther envisioned this community, I'll end with a final quote from his confession, uh, which is really just an articulation of his ecclesiology. And I find this passage incredibly beautiful. I believe that there is only one holy Christian church on earth, that is, the community and number or gathering of all Christians in the whole world, the one bride of Christ. Christ is the only head of this spiritual body. Bishops or pastors are not the heads, rulers, or bridegrooms of this church, but servants, friends, and as the word bishop indicates, overseers, guardians, or caretakers. This Christian community is found not only in the Roman church or pope, but in all the world, as the prophets declared, saying that the gospel of Christ would spread into all the world. Thus, this Christian community is physically scattered, but spiritually gathered in one gospel and faith under one head, that is, Jesus Christ. And wherever this Christian community is found, there is the forgiveness of sins, that is, a realm of grace and of true pardon. The gospel, baptism, and the sacrament of the altar are found in this community, for it is where the forgiveness of sins is offered, obtained, and received. Moreover, Christ and the Spirit of God are there. And this forgiveness of sins is not restricted to one time only, such as in baptism, but is given frequently and as often as a person needs it until they die. Many have died, and many will be raised in Christ. And here we stand today, alive for now, saints visible uh, and invisible. And so this is Luther's church. This is the Reformation church. This is what we have where we're at 500 years later. Nowhere closer to holiness, but very much saved translated through the words and lives of grace-filled Christians. The hope of the Protestant church is not in unity. The hope of the Protestant church is in grace. Grace for our disunity, grace for our conversations, and grace for our recurring questions. And that's all I had to share about Luther today. Uh, would love to your thoughts, responses, feedback. Give your applause first, because that was awesome.
I think that I imagine we had the big conference on Oswald Chambers at Wheaton and my most for his highest on the holiness movement, strive for the second blessing, uh, become perfect. The perfection movement is strong in this country. And you gave us the polar opposite. And does this mean that you are living like a fool every night and you are <laughs> emboldened to, to be as you were when you were a teenager? I mean, talk to us. I mean, does this mean that you, therefore, are reckless in your morals? Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe Catherine should answer. Because <laughs> um, that's the fear that people have. I sometimes will Right. Yeah. Right. And, um, man, so, so I actually think Zal does a pretty good job of this in the book we all have been reading um, in a way that's, like, uncomfortable. So I definitely tried not to be an evil person, right? I mean, I hope, I hope we all try that. The, the, the thing is that on a, on a fundamental level, we can't not be wicked people. At least that's what Luther's saying in, in very lurid terms. Um, and the gospel of grace is there so that you don't despair of, of that, I guess. You know, so more of as, as a pick-me-up and as something that we can aim towards in the eschaton uh, to identify in, at, at that far-off place. You know, we're, we're still going there, yeah. no matter how screwed up we get and no matter what we do to each other. And that's, like, uncomfortable, too, because in a, in a sense it does feel like a free pass. And, right. and like, it, this also doesn't make sense unless your doctrine of hell is really high, too, which is, you know, I think important. Like, yeah. I think evangelicals need to keep preaching hell huh. for that reason. Because um, if you don't, you know, pair off the freedom of grace with the very real threat of a, a judgment of some kind, the fact that there needs to be a reckoning for this, then, then the grace is actually cheap. You need to be saved from something yeah. Yeah. as opposed to nothing. So those are, I don't know, that's a valid response to that. Yeah. Okay, awesome. Nadia's church is actually called like the church of for, for saints and sinners. All saints and sinners, yeah. We have her books in the library. Yeah. I actually liked her books. Yeah, I still I still haven't read it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for, for the sacraments, he, I, I didn't read a ton about this in, in preparing for this talk, but uh, as far as the sacraments go, I mean, Luther, I believe, believed in um, transubstantiation still. Yeah. So, like, th there is something efficacious in, in the, having the literal body of Christ kind of entering into you um, and, and salvific to that. And when, and when he talks about salvation and being a part of that, that ecclesial community, you know, the sacraments are right in there as something that does, like, literally translate grace to you in that way. Um, so, so my sense is that high, high sacramentology as far as practice for, for healing and that sort of thing, but um, not, maybe not sure about in, in other ways. I have to do, take another look at that. But just so you know, I never had a class on Luther at PTS. Uh, I, I did do Calvin, <laughs> um, who, who's, who's also great. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that's off the top of my head how I would respond to that. 
Um, in the confession, the, there was a bit that addressed uh, his doctrine of the word, but off the top of my head, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what direction he takes it in. Yeah. response to that I go back to sort of um, our, our shower thoughts about different denominations and where the emphasis falls because um, I, I do it's, it's not like I think that the Lutherans get it all right all the time like obviously I'm, ang I'm worshiping an Anglican church now um, not that that was necessarily a massive jump <laughs> um, but uh, yeah I mean I think Luther himself had a pretty pessimistic outlook um, but, but both on his own soul and, and just on the, the time that he lived in. So it is, it is a more pessimistic gospel. And, and, and so the, the answer that you find in grace looms as this you know, wonderful, bright, luminous thing that just you know, rips you out of this absolute mire that you're in. And there, and there are less pessimistic trajectories in, in Christianity, and like, even like uh, orthodoxy starting from um, a state of grace from which you fall and then which you return to, as opposed to this direct like down, down up trajectory that you have in Luther. Um, I actually think that, so, you know, the, the hope of the Protestant church isn't in unity. It's, I think it's important that we have these kind of different takes on it because for certain people, one response might be more pastoral than another. You know, it might help them understand what the Lord is doing in, in a more efficacious way. Um, like for, for the Calvinists, it's tremendously encouraging to hear that God is utterly sovereign in a way that every dot and iota is, is somehow um, manifested in the mind of God all the time. Um, like Jonathan Edwards has, has this, this view that God is co-constituting you every single moment that you exist. You don't actually move through time. God just is literally creating the world around you constantly. Um, like that's crazy to me, uh, but so encouraging for so many people in his time to hear that you know, God was sovereign in that way. Um, whereas for the Lutheran, you know, it's encouraging to hear that you know, no matter how dejected and, and outside and wicked I feel, the, the gospel of grace is still reaching me. Um, so I think there's a, there's a pastoral element as well to kind of what, what works. Um, yeah. kind of how I'd respond to that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to echo back. I, I think the one thing I'm taking from this that I appreciate so much is that our fragmentation is actually one of the blessings. And mm -hmm. I love what you said. I, I grew up Methodist. So okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Um, the, the big Wesleyan innovation, and I had a footnote about this when I mentioned Whitfield and Wesley, <clears throat> is uh, um, a personal gospel. 
So, you know, we, you have this account in Luther and the Reformation of sort of God as a gift of grace to us, but that was really to us, like to the community. Like what jarred people hearing Wesley and Whitfield preach for the first time was this sense of like, this is a word for you, like the individual, like picking you out in that way. Um, that's actually not, that's not a Reformation um, idea. That's a, uh, an evangelical idea. <laughs> like that's, that's like the, the founding root of real evangelicalism is that, that heightened sense of like, this is, this is yours, you personally, and speaking to you in a unique way. Um, and I think that's really beautiful and powerful too. forget about my dad is, is the way that whenever, whenever I stepped out of line, he wouldn't frame it just in terms of like, how, you know, how could you do this? I mean, there's a sense, like, there's a sense of culpability that we both understood, me and my end being the one who had done something wrong, and him and his end being, you know, my authority. Um, but uh, that, that solidarity that he would always offer to be like, you know, this, this is something that I went through, or this is something that I, like, what you're doing, I resonate with this in some way. Um, I'm in the mix with you. I mean, that, that was Christ-like for me, you know. Um, as opposed to this kind of off, off in the distance voice, you know, putting me down. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm thinking of this uh, tree now, kind of emerging from Phil's compost pile. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sense, you know, being honest about who we really are. We're a church of overchurched Christians in mm -hmm. a way, and, and you've brought this message of grace fresh again for us. So, thanks. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. All right, folks. Thank you. We'll keep going.